0: If you're you're visiting with us this morning, welcome. Thank you for the privilege of your time. Uh, My prayer this morning for all of us, but certainly for those of you who are visiting with us this morning, is that you will experience the loving embrace of our Lord Jesus Christ through his body, the Bride of Christ here at Zion Presbyterian Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We are going to be looking at verses 3 through 9. If you don't have a Bible, we have actually printed the passage for you in your worship guide on page 10. Or if you would prefer to use a pew Bible, you can just turn to page 964. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible, um, I would exhort you, I would invite you, take a pew Bible home with you, we would love for you to have God's word in your house. I want to begin this morning uh, with a question. What do you think God wants to accomplish in and through you, me, Zion Presbyterian Church in this particular season? What do you think God wants to accomplish in you and in us during this season in the life of Zion Presbyterian Church? I want you to think about that question as we read together 2 Corinthians 1 verses 3 to 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort in salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our suffering, you will also share in our comfort For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises us. The dead. Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Spirit, I beg you for your presence. I beg you to work in power in me and in us. I beg you to pour out yourself into our hearts and our lives. I beg you for your comfort. I beg you that you would change us. Lord, there is not a thing I can say, even on my best day, that would change anybody's heart, anybody's life. And I'm fairly confident today's not my best day. But we know, we know and we believe and we trust that you are here and that you are at work. Lord, work in us and work through us, we pray. Amen. Well, if you are visiting with us this morning, a few weeks ago, we said goodbye to our senior pastor who has faithfully served at Zion Presbyterian Church for almost 15 years and has a relationship with Zion Presbyterian Church for something like 25 years. His name is Paul Joyner and... He is dearly loved and will be deeply, deeply missed. There's a sense in which at this moment in the life of Zion Presbyterian Church, you've walked into a church that's grieving, a church in mourning. And that's good and right because you might remember if you were here last week, When when Keaton read from Acts chapter 20, that told the story of Paul saying goodbye to the elders in Ephesus, that there was much weeping on the part of all. For many here this morning, Paul Joyner's departure has been difficult. It's been a struggle. It's been hard to say goodbye to somebody that you've done life with for who knows how long. To say goodbye, not just to Paul, but to say goodbye to his family who we love and respect. Needless to say, there have been a lot of tears shed over the last months. Of course, the joiner's departure isn't the only reason some of us are grieving this morning. Sitting in this room, there are parents, I'm one of them, whose children have not only rejected them, but have walked away from Jesus and his bride, the church. There are husbands and wives who are having a really hard time staying together. And then there are others who have sadly walked the hard road of divorce. There are single folks who deeply desire to be married, but at least at this moment, there are, there are no prospects out there. There are folks here with very serious health issues. There are others who are grieving the loss of a family member. There are some who can't find work and there are others who feel trapped by their work. There are families that are so broken that they can't imagine ever being all together in the same room again. Me. The fact is, life is hard. It's full of of difficulties and disappointments. We all know heartbreak. My question for you this morning is, what are you struggling with? What this means is that there probably isn't a person in this room who hasn't at one time, or perhaps even this very morning, is asking the question God, what are you doing? God, why are you allowing this to happen to me and to us? What is it that you're trying to accomplish? Well, let's think for a few minutes about what Paul writes at the introduction of his letters to the Christians at Corinth. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 to 9. The first thing that we see in this passage is the fact that struggles, trials, difficulties, even suffering, they are a normal part of the Christian life. Look at verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Father of mercies and the God of all comforts, who comforts us in all our affliction. With these words, Paul is reminding his readers, and he is reminding us that being a Christian does not exempt us from the pains of life. And friends, Paul knows what he's talking about. In chapter 11 of this very same letter Paul writes these words he says five times i received at the hands of the jews the 40 lashes less one three times i was beaten with rods once i was stoned three times i was shipwrecked a night and a day i was adrift see on frequent journeys in danger from rivers danger from robbers dangers from my own people danger from gentiles danger in the city danger in the wilderness danger at sea danger from brothers in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul knew what he was talking about. And then in our passage, he writes of an experience that he had while traveling in Asia, which is modern-day Turkey. In verses 8 and 9, he says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Now, remember, this is the same Paul who just a few chapters from now, in chapter four, writes this. He says, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This is the same apostle Paul who, in chapter 12 of this very letter, has an experience where he is caught up into the heavenlies. He's caught up into paradise. And he hears things that he cannot Repeat and, But he does hear this from the mouth of Jesus. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. To which the Apostle Paul responds, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul, in These passages seems almost unaffected by the difficulties he's experienced. And yet, and you got to catch this, in our passage, how does he describe himself? For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life, Itself. In that moment, the Apostle Paul felt hopeless, felt powerless, trapped, boxed in, cornered, depressed, despairing of life itself. I'm so glad Paul said this it makes room for me. My guess is it makes room for you as well. Is Paul talking outside of both sides of his mouth? Uh, I don't think so. He's just being real. When Jesus calls you to himself, he doesn't call you into a happy, clappy life. He calls you into a life that is oftentimes characterized by weeping. That's heavy. But I want want you to be encouraged. Because again, it it makes room for you and for me. Why is Paul so transparent? Because he wants us to be honest. One of my favorite psalms is Psalm eighty-eight. If you haven't read it, you probably... You you ought to read it. Um, (laughs) It's my favorite psalm because, man, it is dark. It is dark. The psalm starts, "O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. The psalmist goes on and says, My soul is full of troubles. I'm a man who has no strength. And he says to God... You have put me in the depths of the pit. You have caused my companions to shun me. He asks the Lord, Oh, Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? And his final words, You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. There's nothing happy clappy about Psalm 88. But there's something that's incredibly comforting because it makes room for you and for me in our discouragement, in our hurt, in our questions, in our confusion, in our sadness. That being said, What Paul is saying here is that if you follow Jesus, if you look to him in faith, if you trust in his life and death, you are going to encounter afflictions, disappointments, sadness. You are going to weep tears. You are going to feel boxed in, cornered, trapped, you are were, you were not exempt from the harsh realities of life in a fallen world. But of course, this raises a huge question for us. Why? Why does God allow us to experience the brokenness of life in a fallen world? Why does God allow us to walk through the valley of the shadow of death? We'll look again at verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. Verse 6, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Or verse 9, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. What is Paul telling us? He is telling us that our sufferings, our disappointments, our trials, our pains have a purpose. He is telling us that God is actually doing something in us through our hurt, disappointment, and heartbreak. What could God possibly be doing in and through our experiences of struggles and suffering? We'll look again at verses 8 and 9. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves. Think about it for a second. Paul, the apostle, finds himself staring down the barrel of a loaded gun. What exactly is Paul facing? We don't know. Was it persecution? We don't know. Was it some kind of physical ailment? We don't know. But what we do know is this. Paul thinks he is a dead man walking He thinks that death is inevitable, that death is unavoidable, that death is inescapable. Why would God allow this to happen to Paul? He's perhaps the greatest church planner in the history of the world. Verse 9. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but that was to what? To make us not rely on ourselves. That is answer number one that Paul gives to our question, the question I asked at the beginning of our service. What is God seeking to accomplish in this time, in the life of Zion, in your life? God allows our struggles in our suffering, our hurts and our heartbreak to drive us out of ourselves, to wean us from our sense of self sufficiency and self dependence. But why? Why does God want to drive us out of ourselves? Well, because it's our biggest problem. We all by nature, want to stand on our own two feet. Think back to Genesis chapter 3. One of the ways the serpent tempted Adam and Eve was to say, if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you no longer will be God's child. You no longer will be God's servant. Instead, if you eat from the tree, you will be what? Like God, knowing good in evil. One of the things Adam and Eve were saying when they took that first bite was, I declare my independence. I want to stand on my own two feet. Why does God allow struggles and pain to plug us as His dearly loved children? Because God wants to wean us from ourselves. How do our struggles, our fears, our hurts drive us out of ourselves? We reveal what's in our heart. I love how John Newton puts it. He writes, There are abominations which, like nests of vipers, lie so quietly within that we hardly suspect they are there till the rod of affliction rouses them. Then they hiss and show their venom. This discovery is indeed very distressing, yet till it is made, we are prone to think ourselves much less vile than we really are and cannot so hardly abhor ourselves and repent in dust and ashes." Beloved, God drives us out of ourselves by revealing to us our own brokenness, our own sin. Our need for, for help, for cleansing, for forgiveness, for transformation. But that's only part of the answer that Paul gives us in this passage. Paul goes on in verse 9 to say what? He says, but that was, not, that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on Who? but on God who raises the dead. Beloved, at least part of the purpose, part of God's purpose in allowing our troubles and trials is that we would not try to stand up on our own two feet, but rather that we turn to him as our only hope in life and death and that we would crawl up into his lap or better yet to be more biblically accurate That we'd allow him to reach down, pick us up, and place us in his lap. That we would not rely on ourselves, but on Jesus, on him who raises the dead. Another pastor that I love is a guy named William Romaine. He was a contemporary of John Owen, an 18th century British pastor. He wrote this. He said, when the spirit would glorify Jesus He humbles you. When he would glorify his fullness, he makes you feel your emptiness. When he would bring you to rely on his strength, he convinces you of your weakness. When he would magnify the comforts of Jesus, he makes you sensible of your misery. When he would fix your heart on his heaven, he makes you feel your deserved hell when he would exalt his righteousness, you find you are a poor, miserable sinner. And what do we find when we finally begin to rely on God? That he is the father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, He meets us in our pain. He he meets us in our loss. (coughs) He sustains us. And he comforts us. And you ask, how? how? How does he do that? How does God comfort us in our struggles and suffering? With his promises... His promises are like a constellation of stars that blaze before the eyes of his people who are experiencing experiencing the dark night of suffering. As one pastor put it, God's promises in Scripture sparkle like diamonds on the pages of Scripture to those in the darkness of suffering And these promises are snatched up and prized when the dark trials crash into our lives. In pain, these promises become for us more than lines in a book. Trials open Scripture and offer us deep experiences of joy and glory. God comforts us with His promises. He also comforts us by his sustaining grace. Think for a minute. While we don't know exactly what Paul is talking about in our passage, we don't know what his affliction was. What we do know is this two things. That in that moment in Asia, Paul knew he was dead, it was over. But in this moment, in the moment that he pins this letter, he is very much alive. Paul discovered that he was like the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. He had been on fire, and that fire should have destroyed him. But the fire of affliction didn't consume him. It didn't destroy him. And the result in our passage, he is a spectacle of grace. The strength and stability of Paul can be explained only by the miracle of God's sustaining grace. God comforts us in our struggles. God comforts us in our suffering with his promises. He comforts us by sustaining us. And lastly, he comforts us through each other. Look at verses 3 and 4 and 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. What does this tell us? It tells us this, that God allows us to experience struggles and suffering and discouragement, even pain, so that he might comfort us, but also so that he might equip us to be agents, and not just agents, but actually conduits of God's bountiful comfort and encouragement to those facing any kind of distress. God working through you to comfort others. This this blew me away when I started thinking about this. I guess the way that I always thought about this passage is that I, I thought what Paul was saying was that God comforted me, and now I come and I comfort you. And there is some truth to that. We know that, that if, if, you've, if, if you're going through a divorce, it's helpful to sit down with somebody who's walked those roads. We know if you have a child in the hospital, it's helpful to, to talk with somebody who's, who's been there. But that's not what Paul is saying primarily here. What Paul is saying here is that when we comfort other people, It's not us. We are not the source of comfort. It's God is the source of comfort through us. It is not we who comfort other people, but God who comforts other people. Paul isn't the source of the Christians at Corinth's comfort. God is. Yes, God uses Paul, but it's God who is working through Paul to comfort others. Paul gives us an example of this just a couple of chapters later in this letter. Paul is recounting in chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians, his time in Macedonia, and he says this, he says, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. And then he writes this, and I want you to listen. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. There it is. God is at work in us, and God is at work through us. What a privilege. What an honor. How should this shape our lives? Well, at a very basic level, it means that we need to be in meaningful in transparent relationships with one another as i often say when god calls you to himself he calls you to others he is called to himself it means that we need to humble ourselves and invite others into our pain Into our suffering, into our heartbreak, into our hurt, into our sadness, into our struggles, into our disappointment, into our despair. Don't be so proud as to not let people know what's going on. And it means that we need to share with one another how God has met us in our suffering and afflictions and comforted us. Because in that sharing of God's comfort in our lives, God is at work comforting others. I can't tell you how God met Kathy and me when we came here. We were bleeding. We, we, had, we had been bludgeoned by a former church. And our son had gone off the rails. We were wrecks. And so many of you came to us, put your arms around us, hugged us, prayed for us, prayed with us, spoke words over us, what you need to know is, while it was you speaking, it was God speaking through you. That's been my experience right here at Zion Presbyterian Church. Now I'll bet I know what you at least some of you are thinking. I feel like I'm staring down the barrel of a loaded gun, and I don't feel anything but despair. How can I know that what Paul says in this passage is trustworthy and true? Well, as one pastor puts it, we don't always feel what is real, and oftentimes what we feel isn't Real Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, the reason I asked Mark to read the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from Daniel 3 earlier this, in the service is because it's an illustration of what Paul is saying in our passage. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are sentenced to death in a fiery furnace for their unwillingness to fall down and worship Nebuchadnezzar's golden image. But when they are thrown into the fire instead of dying, when Nebuchadnezzar and his counselors look into the furnace, what do they see? They see not just Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire. They are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like A son of the gods. What in the world does that mean? Who is this fourth man? Well, in the words of Tim Keller, in the words of the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, there is a mysterious figure called simply the angel of the Lord. Not just an angel, but the angel. He is not like other angels who appear elsewhere in the Bible. When he appears, he speaks in the burning bush to Moses. His words are said to be God's words. His speaking is God's speaking. When the angel appears, he is given worship in a way that other angels refuse. To see this angel was to see God. The angel is mysterious because he seems to be God in visual form. This is exactly what the prophet Isaiah prophesied in chapter 43. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not overcome you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Fear not, for I am with you. Beloved, while the Bible doesn't say we won't have to walk through various fires in our lives, it does say that God is with us in the fire. As the author of Hebrews reminds us, God says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. That is the truth, whether you feel it or not. But the good news of the gospel isn't just that God knows our pain and walks with us in our pain but rather that God in the person of Jesus Christ has entered into our pain. He has entered into the furnace. The furnace of the wrath of God that you and I deserve. And in his resurrection, he has conquered and redeemed our pain. Because of Jesus' death, and particularly because of his resurrection, we can sing, knowing, even in the darkest moments of life, when through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be your supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. So... Let me ask you once again, what do you think God wants to accomplish in you and in us during this season in the life of Zion Presbyterian Church? According to what Paul says in this passage, God is in the process of weaning us from ourselves so that we might grow in our dependence upon him who raises the dead, so that through us he can comfort those around us with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted by God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for just the honesty, the, the reality, the, uh, the fact that it, it actually makes room for us, for our experiences, for our questions, for our hurts. But thank you that you do more than that. Thank you that in Jesus you have, you have entered into our pain so that you might bring healing so that you might bring hope, so that, the, so that we can know that the day will come when there will be no more weeping, there will be no more tears, there will be no more death, there will be no more suffering, there will be no more difficulties, because we will be with you, and you will be with us. We pray all this in Christ's name, amen.